Hello, everybody. Jared here with the Wild Plant Culture Podcast. Today, we have a dispatch from the front lines. Not some covert, undeclared war in the third world, but from New Jersey, the belly of the beast. Frontline of habitat destruction, deer overpopulation, invasive species. But don't turn that dial yet. We're talking to Dr. Jay Kelly about finding and restoring New Jersey's rare plant species. And a lot of it is good stuff. The music you heard at the beginning was a little snippet from my once and possibly future band, Horse Graveyard. Check us out at horsegraveyard.bandcamp.com if you're into raw, organic, dark, heavy, soulful music. The full track is at the end of this podcast. As usual, this podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants, wildridgeplants.com, where we are growers and stewards of native plants. If you're looking around for something, for a holiday gift, for a little one, allow me to recommend our very own children's book, The Puddle Garden, which is sort of native plant propaganda directed at young people, but it's a really sweet story. Little bear moves to new house. It's just lawns all around. And he makes some habitat for friends. That's the Puddle Garden, available at Wild Ridge Plants, or look it up. I think I mentioned last time around that I have an article in the current issue of Orion Magazine. Well, that article is now unlocked, so you can go check it out in the autumn 2020 issue of Orion Magazine. So look it up online. Or if you're fortunate enough to be a subscriber, flip to page, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12 or something like that. It is called Hickory Gooseberry Pipeline. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for putting feedback out there on Apple iTunes. I recently switched the platform for this podcast, so it should be available on just about every podcast service that's out there. Or as usual, you can find it the show notes, my blog entries, and so on at wildplantculture.com. And we've got an Instagram thingy and a Facebook thingy and all of that. And I'd love for you to be part of the conversation. So thanks for coming along on this conversation with Dr. J. Kelly. I wanted to start out by asking you, and you're like a reasonably outdoorsy person, love nature. Like, why do you live in a shithole state like New Jersey? Uh, I was born into it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm born and raised in New Jersey, and um, I played in the woods as a kid and had really positive family experiences here. And then um, that kind of got in my bones. Uh, but then also, studying ecology at Rutgers, um, professors would take us around to different natural areas, you know, in, in the state that I had never been to and show me how amazing the state still was that I hadn't realized. And that experience of seeing the, these precious places and the riches that New Jersey still had to offer in the natural world, I think, um, really gave me an appreciation of what was here, but I didn't realize how much a part of me it was until I left the state. After college, I went and worked in Hawaii in the rainforest doing work with endangered bird studies. And I distinctly remember um, 
when the seasons began to change and November rolled around, I started physically hallucinating the smell of dry leaves as I walked through the rainforest. Uh-huh. And I would be stopped dead in my tracks by this smell that I was sensing, but it actually wasn't there. I'd look around to see where, you know, where the smell was coming from, and it was from inside me. And it was like I, my body was tuned to the seasons that weren't actually happening and changing around me there. And that was my first real wake-up call that this place was in my bones, and no matter where I went in the world, I couldn't leave it behind. And the other th- experience that made me want to come back was um, when I was away, my my brother uh, was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and was having a really hard time uh, in high school, suffering his way through that. And being so far away and not being able to be there for him physically and in any way um, was painful for me. I, I felt irresponsible and wanted to just be there for my brother in ways that I couldn't. And I was really close to my grandparents and knowing that my grandmother was living alone and getting older and I wasn't a part of her life in the ways that I had been, I, I felt, I guess, kind of guilt and a desire to work my way back home and settle down here. So that combined with the kind of conservation ethic that um, was cultivated in me by my professors and I guess probably that I was born with made me really strongly want to come back here and try to do as much as I could to make this place better and stop um, the kind of trajectory of destruction and degradation that you see all around you in New Jersey in, in whatever way I could from playing itself out and try to just help um, the natural areas of the state as much as I could. I feel like in some ways we're sort of on the front lines here in New Jersey and we see problems that are maybe like emerging elsewhere or fully emerged here and get to try to grapple with, you know, what do these problems mean and what are we going to do about them? And it's like, you know, the flaw of the state, it's, it's so densely populated, there's so many people. And then I feel like in some way the strength of the state could be that there's so many people, if only people could be brought around to interacting in a different way with the natural world and being a little bit more helpful to it. Sure, and I think a lot of <clears throat> things would have been a lot better if people had stayed here and toughed it out and tried to make it better instead of leaving and, yeah, and moving on to greener pastures. I think, you know, many people that enjoy the natural world and, and want to have it a more active part of their lives look to other places to, to find it, whether it's Vermont or the West Coast or Colorado. Um, and so there's a vacuum of people with those sensibilities that's left behind here in New Jersey, and I didn't want to contribute to that myself. What are a couple places in Jersey that you go to and you're like, yeah, this is this is where it's at. This like is representative of some of the things that are really exciting about the natural world in New Jersey. I mean, I find pieces of that in, in every community. I think, you know, there's wonderful things happening everywhere, but the um, the kind of larger, wilder tracts of the state um, are the places where I, I tend to feel the greatest immersion in it. So, you know, in the, the large forested areas of the highlands in the Ridge and Valley region, or the, the massive salt marshes and tidal rivers of southern New Jersey in the Pine Barrens, um, are the places where that stuff is easiest to find because it's all around you. Um, but there's there's places like that. There's nooks and crannies anywhere. Uh, it's just all you need is a, a pair of open eyes and um, willingness to see what there is to find it. 
I was curious what other people are seeing with their eyes when they're observing. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share like one or two places that you went to this year that you know were exciting like what did you find you don't have to say anything confidential in terms of location information but like just build out a picture with some of the details that maybe like struck you about whatever those places were um well i think maybe the most stunning place that i went to uh was uh there was a large quaking bog that i had the privilege of getting to explore uh, in northern New Jersey, it was attached to a private lake community, and I have a friend that has a house there, so she invited me up to just check the place out, and um, it must have been, I guess, 50 or 70 acres of this massive quaking bog system full of incredible boreal species. It was like a, you know, somebody scooped up a piece out of northern Ontario and plopped it down yeah. in northern New Jersey, and it was loaded with orchids and carnivorous plants and rare species, some of which I'd never seen before, like Lycopodiella inundata, um, bog bean, Menyanthes was there, and half a dozen other species that I had never seen before were, you know, in this, this bog. Were you like kayaking out to it or walking, or like how did you even approach checking out a 50 acre bog? Yeah, I, pa I paddled out to it. There was a lot of open water there, and the bog mats were kind of fringing the pond and floating in, in large sections of it. I'd, I'd done a lot of work um, exploring the, the lakes and ponds of northern New Jersey this year and, and have been finding just uh, amazing species uh, everywhere I went. They were either, most of them were just new to me, not necessarily new to the state or significant in any particular way, but I also had the good fortune of finding lots of rare species that um, hadn't been seen before in those places as well. I do a lot of field botany and I have to admit that like I sort of uh, get qualms about some of the aquatics like I'll scoop up some aquatics and put them in a plastic bag and bring them home and it's like just this like a lump of like, <laughs> vegetation without any structure whatsoever and I just look at it and maybe my mind is not spatially acute enough but I just look at this lump of green stuff in a bag and I'm like I don't even know what I'm looking at right now. Like yeah, it definitely is challenging like to that. preserve properly, and there's some tricks to it that I'm, I'm still learning myself. But there, it's, a, it's a group of plants that is kind of like an acquired taste. They're not the most appealing, attractive plants in many cases on yeah. the surface, but they're fascinating plants that are highly adapted to those environments, living much of their lives underwater or partially submerged. and. I just find them fascinating and have really developed an appreciation for it. And because they're, so much of them are, are hidden from view and difficult to study um, and, and just challenging to identify, it's, uh, it's in some ways kind of a, a, a frontier of, of botany that I can you know, forge my way into because it's highly understudied in yeah. not just New Jersey but around the world. So it's been fun in that way, just kind of finding new new species in places that hadn't been seen before. Maybe just because nobody had bothered to look there, or had swam or paddled right past the plant and not, you know, taken close enough I look think to. We call them seaweeds, right? <laughs> even though they're like in a lake somewhere. It's like, oh, my paddle is stuck in this damn seaweed, and then you know, like, all right, get the company to come and you know, dredge it out and herbicide it and whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's like meanwhile there's a lot of diversity going on there and there's a lot of plants that are like indicators of different conditions like you know whether a, 
a water system is receiving excess fertility or not, or whether it you know retains its crystal clear acidic cold waters or whatever. And it, it's kind of fascinating to me when I find plants that help, and I think all plants do this, but that tell the story of the land, or in this case, the water in some way. And Philip Aquatics, in my very limited experience with them, do tell that like you're like oh wow like you know on this side of the lake there's like some boggy areas and this other side is like clearly enriched because there's you know more weedy species or more disturbed or yeah for sure um you also find peat species that are adapted to certain ph you know levels in the water so you'll find some species in the limestone regions of the state and others in more acidic pools of water but yeah, just like the these groups of plants are underappreciated by botanists, it's the same for the general public. Most people think of aquatic plants in their ponds as weeds or nuisances that, you know, snag their fishing hooks or get in the way of their paddle boats or their, their boat motors or just swimming around. And people, you know, unthinkingly clear them out um, without realizing that they actually provide real values for us. I mean, they're really important for uh, not just, you know, the, their their portion of biodiversity in their own right, but supporting fish communities and lake systems. So people clear the water to make it easier to fish, but in the process they shoot themselves in the foot by destroying the fish habitat. Yeah. Um, so it's you know there's a learning curve that I think the public would do well to try to overcome to to better appreciate the role that these plants play and and how we can benefit from them if we just let things be to a greater degree. Yeah, I you know I feel like I was like down traveling somewhere recently and a lot of people fishing off the coast and there was one guy who had a bumper sticker I was like more marshes mean more fish or something like that and I was like right on it's so exciting to me when I see sportsmen who like get it because they're the people who are really out there and like really observing things a lot of the times and like you know sitting still in some wild place for two hours like pursuing their quarry and it's cool when the puzzle pieces click because for sure, they, they have a voice of authority also within their community. And there's a long tradition of sportsmen playing an active role in conservation in general and yeah. protecting public lands from development and helping restore and protect endangered species. Um, and we've interacted a lot with sportsmen um, in beaches in New Jersey. We've been trying to protect beach habitat um, for rare plants and animals that grow on the beaches in places where people are... Um, used to recreational fishing and driving their trucks on beaches to get to the, the hot spots where the fish are. Yeah. And when we first started putting up our protective fencing to keep people from driving in these sensitive areas, many of the fishermen were, were angry, thinking that we were trying to take the place away from them and prevent them from doing these things that they'd been doing for so long and, yeah. and love so much. When we would just explain to them what we're doing and how we're actually trying to find a balance that allows them to continue fishing and driving on the beaches without impacting these habitats and these other species. And at first, it didn't look like there was anything to protect because it was just, you know, vehicle ruts in the sand. But after we we kept the trucks out of these places and the, the waves and winds brought the seeds back, by the end of the growing season, you could see lush vegetation growing on the beaches and birds nesting there. And um, the fishermen, in really short order, began to be very protective of those places that we were working to protect, that they were angry about at first. And when we went back later in the season to do our rare plant surveys to see if any rare species had turned up, they were yelling at us to get out of these protected areas because they didn't want people to degrade them. So I think yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, a diverse you know, range of allies to be found in the conservation community and what seems like might be um, 
divergent or contrary interests at first, you'll, I think it's really easy to find common ground, and and um, and it's you know important to do so because it can only lead to to greater returns if we uh, try to do approach things in that way instead of in a an antagonistic sort of a manner. I feel like there's this fear that like everything is a slippery slope, and if you take away one thing, then all the rest of it's going to be taken away next. Sort of like you know, don't take away my automatic rifle because the next thing I'm not going to have any guns at all. Like, you know, they're going to be confiscated by the government or whatever. And I, I understand that fear. Like, you know, sure. you're dealing with this, this like strange outsider group of environmentalists or whatever. And it's like, well, what are they going to try to do? And I think it's exciting when you can find that balance and have that in-person interaction where you can develop some trust. And I think this is the real challenge for the future is finding ways that we can live in, in better balance with the natural world and with each other, you know, and just in the same ways that we found that we could protect these beach habitats and help restore these rare beach plant species across the state without impacting recreational use whatsoever. We need to find those kinds of opportunities in, in all ways in our lives, whether it's these lake communities and not just, you know, blitzing them with herbicides yeah. and raking everything out, but leaving places, you know, in the lakes for natural processes to occur. Even if we're not protecting the whole lake, we can do, we can set aside some places and, and maintain, you know, a mix of these multiple uses um, without any costs or impacts. And, and all it can lead to is greater returns if we just pay better attention and focus more on what we really need and find ways to bring more of this natural world back into our lives and activities. Um, it can only enrich us. What are some of the species on the beach that you were working with or protecting? The main one that started us out was sea beach amaranth. It's a federally listed threatened species. Um, but there's probably 20 different rare plants that grow on the beaches, some of which are also globally rare but aren't listed by the federal government, um, and some of which are just uh, locally rare here in New Jersey. Uh, but sea beach knotweed was another one that's a globally rare plant. And some of the, the state-listed rare plants that are, are not globally rare are things like sea beach sandwort, Honkenia peploides, which is a circumboreal species that you find growing across the coasts of the world in the northern latitudes, but it trickles its way down the coast um, into, into this state. And then we have southern species too, like sea beach evening primrose, Monothera hemophusa, yeah, reaches its northern limits in Atlantic County, New Jersey, and then disappears after that. So try to make sure that it stays here and protect it where it occurs. So what's the life cycle of some of these species like, like a sea beach amaranth or something where it's like, you know, one year it's all tire ruts and the next year you have a proliferation of plant growth? What What's going on there with their seeds or their growth pattern or their life cycle? So it's a really harsh place to live, you know, probably the, some of the more dynamic and difficult environments on the planet for a plant to try to grow because you've got intense heat and drought conditions on the sands like a desert. There's poor nutrients in the sand. You're constantly getting washed over by storm surges and um, blown over with heavy winds. And so plants that live there are really hardy and have lots of amazing adaptations to withstand it. Um, sea beach amaranth uh, is an annual plant, so every year it dies back completely and survives through the winter only as seed and then emerges the next year. And the, the seeds are buoyant. They can float in the water and be dispersed by um, waves. They also blow really easily in the wind. So the fun thing about plants like this is that wherever you find them one year, there's no guarantee they're gonna be there the next year. And every year, it's, it's, uh, it's a new game to find, try to find where they've occurred. 
Um, people call them fugitive species because they're constantly moving up and down the landscape trying to find safe sites to grow and create that seed bank for the next generation. But the plants are also able to withstand uh, burial and, and um, they, they might get buried by a sand deposit or pulled off to sea and buried in an offshore sandbar or something, but they can stay dormant for a hundred years or more, it's thought at this point. Uh, in fact, CB Chamaranth has kind of a, a really interesting uh, history in New Jersey where that, that um, involves seed dormancy potentially where it was extinct in New Jersey, as far as anybody knows, since 1913. But in the year 2000, it returned to the state. And the place that it came back uh, was a place that the beach hadn't existed for several decades. It had eroded away. The Army Corps of Engineers pumped sand back onto the shore. And then Sea Beach Amaranth turned up there a couple years later. And so people were speculating that the Army Corps of Engineers, of all people, might have been responsible for bringing back this endangered species to New Jersey. And even more fascinating was that the, the deposit of sand that they pumped onto shore was a 4,000-year-old deposit, according wow. to the geologists that did that study. So it might have been a 4,000-year-old seed stock of sea beach amaranth that was brought back to life as a result of this beach nourishment operation in Seabright and Monmouth Beach. And so people were uh, really attached to that possibility and that idea because it was just so exciting and remarkable. But it's much more likely that plants just blew across the... Uh, the harbor from New York where there were thriving populations at the time and it was it's a short distance of about 10 miles that it's very easy for for the plants to move so um, it's unlikely that it was seed dormancy that brought it back to life but in this case but it definitely plays a role in the year-to-year -year dynamics um, of the plants you know coming back to life in the spring and then staying dormant through the fall and winter sometimes you hear stories about people finding things in the ice yeah finding plant parts in Siberia or whatever and it's like could you germinate a seed yeah, that has bringing, been in the ice for 25,000 years that's like no longer even an extant species? It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. But I wonder about that seed bank a lot, you know, not just coastally, but throughout New Jersey where there's been so much species disappearance and you wonder like what things could still be persisting in the soil and what might trigger their germination and are there ingredients that are missing in terms of natural disturbances that might help bring things back, whether it's, you know, the lack of certain large mammals and the way that they structure landscapes or the way that they disturb landscapes or the lack of fire. And like, it seems like some woodland species have seeds that just really don't seed bank and they really don't persist. Uh, some of the woodland herbs. Yeah, it might be too much disturbance. Like there was a fascinating story yeah, uh, in Hawaii. Interesting too. Um, on the big island in Hawaii, they had a number of large herbivores that were introduced for hunting and for agriculture. So there were wild ranging herds of cattle and goats and sheep in the forest that were decimating yeah. native plant populations there. And in the 1970s and early 80s, I believe, in Volcanoes National Park, they started to control these introduced mammals and put up exclosures to um, look at how they were impacting the vegetation there. And in the, some of the exclosures that they they installed, they were plants started growing up that were new to, to science that had never been seen before, oh, no. and were being suppressed for how, you know 100 years or more since European colonization by these introduced herbivores, and were just there flying beneath the radar as a result of the goats browsing them down to the ground every year. Yeah. So who knows what's still in the seed banks, just waiting to be found if we can keep the deer populations a little better under control around here. 
um, never mind what's in the seed bank itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you wonder what comes up for like a week in the spring as browsed instantly and you wouldn't even know it's there unless you happen to look out. I mean, even common species, you'll see like, you take a walk in the woods in the spring, it looks so good. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, there's uvularias everywhere and there's polygonatums everywhere. And then, you know, you come back in like July and by July, I honestly like, I don't even really want to be in the woods in a lot of New Jersey. I'm like, just take me to a meadow somewhere because the woods is like, it's just cleaned out. Yeah. And it's depressing because you might have been in the same place in the spring and seen what was actually there in their herbaceous layer. And then, you know, every week it's a little bit more diminished and then it's just... Yeah, and I th it's also scary because, you know, while there's extraordinary cases and examples out there of like sea beach amaranth and others that that have these dormancy capabilities and, and resilience and can keep coming back after potentially centuries of disturbance, um, I don't think we can assume that for most plants. And I think what we're seeing as these plants get browsed down repeatedly every year and new seed is not able to be produced successfully because of over browse, it's only a matter of time before we're going to be losing these populations and they're not going to be able to yeah. um, continue to withstand that, that browse pressure um, or just, in, you know, in dying from old age and there's no more seeds to replace yeah. them in the next cohort, next generation coming through. I think sometimes too about some of the specialized like native annuals and biennials that like presumably rely on putting down a large amount of seed and kind of, you know, replenishing their population and may not may not be excellent seed bankers like seed beach amaranth and just think about like your your Indian paintbrushes and your fringe gentians and your fireweeds and stuff like that and like they may have been plants that existed in response to some kind of long term open habitats or some kind of disturbance but now disturbed habitats are so full of invasive species that you know if you break the cycle of you know we were talking about uh, indian paintbrush earlier if you break the cycle of it being able to seed in or those habitats are not available for a while like what's the chance of it ever really coming back and i guess that leads me to one thing that you know i want to ask you about and i think it's nuanced and i kind of want to get into it is like the restoration of some of these species like at what point do you think it's appropriate to say you know these species are no longer viably maintaining themselves in the landscape or they're disappearing from the state and like what are some red lights for you because i know it gets real specific real quick but what are some you know red lights where you're like i don't feel comfortable with um approaching you know this kind of restoration scenario for rare plants and what are some other situations where you feel really compelled to um you know involve humans in the process of of keeping some of these plants in our flora well i mean i think it's it's tricky to make generalizations about it um if you want to go real specific with particular species or scenarios like feel free or or take it however you like well i think that the first thing that needs to be done to be responsible is to take stock of what's actually out there. You know, we know so so little about so many species and the basic groundwork of figuring out whether a species is rare or to what extent it's rare and what are the status and trends of its populations, that work um, is needs to be done before we can really, I think, determine, conf, you know, and have any confidence that restoration is something that's even needed. Um, many species that 
were thought to be rare turn out to be much more common when people do the hard work of looking for them and maybe don't need, you know, interventions of the, the kinds that we thought. So, you know, there's limited resources in conservation uh, and environmental work in general, and I think it makes sense to, to, to be really considered and responsible with how those resources get spent and not wasting time and energy on things that aren't necessary, you know. So the first step is just making sure that the work needs to be done. And in the process of doing that, there's an opportunity to collect a lot of really useful information about the biology of the species, what are its habitat associations, you know, plant species that it grows with, soil affinities, pollinators, things like that. And that's really important, I think, because if you're going to do restoration that has any hope of success, you really need to work with the biology of the species and not treat them all the same and expect it to work. So I think um, if it's determined that that kind of work is needed, the first thing to do is to try to you know, protect the populations that are out there as much as possible from, for, from continued decline. And then first work with natural processes to see if you can get nature to do the work for you. Because mm -hmm. you'll get much better returns. These species can, if the conditions are right, they can reproduce themselves far better than we ever could. You know, with, uh, and sea beach amaranth is a really good example of that. It, um, a single plant can produce thousands of seeds and so just by uh, putting up these vehicle exclosures in our parks and other municipalities that are working with us, we've just allowed natural processes to occur. The winds and waves wash the seeds back up every year. And, you know, for an hour's worth of work, you can protect a mile worth of coastline and everything restores itself without any additional effort. Yeah. And we've seen these, the species respond uh, accordingly. So Sea Beach Amaranth had record populations in the past two years in New Jersey as a result of these efforts um, and other species have followed suit and I think there's opportunities to do similar things elsewhere so you know if we can keep deer populations under control for example and do a really aggressive deer management you'll see the trees reproducing themselves far yeah. faster than we could ever plant them you know you, our studies have found that in forest environments where there's an intact canopy if you keep deer populations out or at their natural background levels of about 10 per square mile, you'll get about 4,000 trees per acre occurring in there. And there's no way that that's ever going to be economical for people to, yeah. to mimic. Um, and it would probably be for lower quality results with all the soil disturbance and everything else that would have to take place for people to plant that many trees per acre in a forest. So I think, you know, the first step should really be working with natural processes and seeing if you could just tweak the system to get those kinds of uh, returns. But there's gonna be some things that are gonna require extra effort where the natural processes aren't in place in, in, in the ways that they used to be. So for uh, American chapseed um, is a good example of that. Schwalbia americana is the only federally listed endangered species in New Jersey. And that one depends on fire dynamics that largely don't exist in the state in the ways Give that they used to. Give us a little to. bit of your personal backstory with Schwalbia if you don't mind, and then kind of cut back into what you're going to say. Um, so I started working for the state government in 2001 and was hired to monitor the state's uh, last population of Schwalbia Americana um, for the state government. And that year that I started the monitoring, I was fortunate, incredibly fortunate, that the population actually exploded that year. Um, it had been only, it had numbered only about 100 plants or so for the previous 10 or 20 years that monitoring had gone on. And that year it exploded to about 700. And people thought that it was on its way out. They thought it was inbred because it was the last population north of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 
was isolated and had low genetic diversity. And on top of that, people had tried for 10 years to grow it um, in greenhouse environments for, and, and also in the field to help uh, its recovery and had, had repeatedly failed without explanation. So they thought there was, it was inbred. And then when I was handed the reins to monitor the population and the population had exploded in front of our eyes, it was pretty clear to me that um, maybe the, 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 the cause wasn't inbreeding so much as that we just didn't know enough about its biology to know what conditions it needed and wanted to grow in. So I spent the next um, seven years studying Schwalbia and it became the focus of my dissertation uh, as a grad student at Rutgers. And I continue to work with it for the state government and federal governments today to, to help it um, uh, recover uh, in New Jersey. Uh, and by, by paying attention to what the conditions were, the, the plants that it grew with and the soil and water conditions that it liked, we were able to figure out how to grow it in the greenhouse and have since successfully restored it to uh, a number of places that it has, had occurred in the Pine Barrens. Um, but in terms of the conditions and, and natural processes that it likes, it's a, it only grows in open canopy conditions, so it's a fire-dependent species, and it needs you know, natural fire dynamics where there's wildfires occurring that will um, kill out patches of uh, the pitch pine forests and create the light conditions that it prefers. And we've been suppressing wildfire successfully for 100 years now or more in New Jersey using prescribed burning techniques um, by burning in the winter and at low levels just to eat up the fuel on the forest floor. And so we have fewer wildfires than likely used to occur. Um, and the prescribed burns are not necessarily a substitute for those fires because they're not strong enough to kill out the, the canopy trees. And so Schwalbia and many other species in the Pine Barrens are at risk of extinction in New Jersey at this point as a result of the, the change in the fire regime that humans have caused. So without that you know, being present, it takes a lot more work for us to um, create habitat for it or you know, enhance habitat or restore it to places where it no longer exists because the pine trees have regrown and taken these places over and shaded everything out again. So for that plant, we need to, we, it has to, we have a really painstaking work to grow it in the greenhouse and then work to find places that are still suitable to plant it in the field or um, alternatively to create places where we can plant it. Because the, the bottom line is we want not just the, the plantings to be successful and, and survive, but we want the plants to be naturally able to reproduce once we put them there. Yeah. You know, and so it's not enough just to pick a place and plant things like it's a garden. Um, gardens can play an important role for conservation too, but in the wild, we need the plants to reproduce themselves and for natural reproduction to maintain them. And um, that's the ultimate, you know, indicator of success of these operations. And getting that to happen isn't always easy and sometimes takes years or decades to confirm that it's been successful or not. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the Pine Barrens is an area that I think most people will accept is a, is a fire-prone and fire-dependent ecosystem. And I feel like, oh yeah, so sorry everybody, I think the roadside mower is going by, so we're going to have some <laughs> background music, but, you know, crows, roadside mower, could be worse. Um, God, let's not talk about roadside mowing now, because we'll both get fucking pissed. Um, but, you know, there are other parts of the state where I feel like we're thinking more about using fire or the possibilities of using fire have opened up the last couple of years have opened up quite a bit. I'm wondering like, 
both you know how you've looked at that academically and also like where your instincts are in terms of forests in the Piedmont or the Highlands, high quality forests, low quality forests, oak forests, non-oak forests, like where's your mind at right now in terms of using fire as a restoration tool or even simply like does it belong or not and how important is that? Well I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities in using fire as a restoration tool. It's certainly needed in, in places where fire is like a, a natural and infrequent part of the creating the landscapes that occur there like the pine barrens but um, it can also I think be useful elsewhere in lots of different ways in some cases I think you know fire probably naturally occurred less frequently um, in the northern parts of the state except in places like mountaintops that were dry and prone to lightning strikes but we also had Native American populations here for thousands of years that we know used fire regularly um, in managing wildlife and um, food resources in various ways and that's also responsible for uh, the creating the forest that we've been um, that we've inherited from from the past and the the challenge is figuring out um, how it can be used most effectively without um, harmful consequences because we don't as while we know the Native Americans used fire we don't know very much about the details and the details matter you know how frequently they burned um, how extensively they burned it's not likely that they burned you know every place in the landscape equally so I don't think we want to go about assuming that that was the case um, and then on top of that we the forests today aren't the same forests that they were living in hundreds of years ago we've got deer populations that are 10 to 20 times higher than they were at those times in the past we've got invasive species out the wazoo in, in new jersey um, climate change and invasive pests and diseases and all kinds of things uh, you know natural dispersal mechanisms and, and disturbance regimes besides fire that are very different than they were back then so I don't think we we also don't want to assume that we can very easily necessarily use fire and expect to get the same results that Native Americans did in for example supporting wildlife or oak regeneration or other things if you burn a place and expect oaks to come back I think you're in for a rude awakening if you hadn't done, haven't done something to address the deer population first yeah, I mean if the deer eat all the acorns you're not gonna have any oaks. and the oak seedlings are like candy to deer um, so, you know, it, it makes sense to, I think, start, like, just like we talked about with endangered species, to start by taking stock of what conditions are present in a given place and thinking really carefully about what tools, uh, well, what, what the needs are that need to, or what the problems are that need to be addressed in those places and what tools are the best ones to address them. And not just go in assuming that all problems occur everywhere and that all tools are equally appropriate to address them everywhere. You know, if we have a place that it, it's a rare thing in New Jersey anymore to see healthy, active regeneration of trees and a, a thriving shrub community in the understory, those are precious places that are probably the last places we want to burn at this point. Because if we burn them to the ground, um, you're going to be feeding local deer populations, attracting them to those areas, and there's no guarantee that you're going to get the same quality communities back after you burn it. On the other hand, we also have lots of degraded places in New Jersey 
where there's nothing in the understory or it's a shit show of invasive shrubs and vines and, and other species and it might be a really useful tool to use to to burn through those communities and stimulate some regeneration or just suppress the invasive so that uh, it'll make it easier to um, to restore the native plant communities in those places. So I think there's lots of ways that fire has potential for supporting forest health and, and especially grasslands as well in New Jersey to, to support biodiversity. But I think it's more complicated um, than it's often made out to be where, you know, you hear people advocating that we should be burning everywhere for a variety of reasons or burning nowhere. And um, again, I think you just want to, everything is context specific and you should pay attention to the details of those contexts so that you don't end up doing more harm than good. You're showing me that five lobe sassafras leaf, <laughs> leaf earlier and I feel like, you know, if you don't know what a sassafras leaf looks like, you're not going to stop and be like, what the fuck is this? It's a five-lobe sassafras leaf. But when you do, you know, maybe it's not a revelatory experience, but it just adds some, like, detail and richness to your life. And it's this weird thing about ecology where I feel like one of the things that I think, if I can speak for you and me, and you can contradict me if I'm wrong, one of the things that keeps me in it is, like, just, like, the layers and layers of complexity where it's like there's always something new in the store, there's always some confounding thing that I really have no idea what the hell is going on. And at the same time, I feel like that's what makes ecology um, this sort of perennial underdog in the social and political arena because you can't just make these really simplistic blanket statements like, oh, burning is all good, or tree cutting is all good, or all rare species should be propagated and planted back out in the landscape because you get into particular scenarios really quickly and it's well like not all rare species have anything in common other than the fact that they're on a state list you know some of them are edge of range rarities and might be very common elsewhere some of them are like extreme habitat specialists and we only have a couple of those habitats that they're appropriate to and you just you quickly get down into I think this like rich detail that I think is alluring to those of us who become ecologists, but is also like very frustrating from a communications standpoint. And if you can get somebody to the point where they're like, wow, that sassafras leaf has five lobes on it, you're kind of dipping people into the allure of that complexity and, and mystery and, and sometimes like the weirdness and wildness of it too. Yeah, I mean, it's just for, it's, it's an endless treasure trove of like wonders and delights and I think just connects people to their kind of childlike sense of looking at the world where things are new and it's, mm. you know, every where you turn, there are things that you can discover, you know, and it might not be new to science, it might not be useful in any particular way that you're going to get some profit out of and be able to commodify or, but it's, but there's like an, an endless world of personal discovery out there. And that can just, I, it ends up, for me, is addictive. I get whatever it is, dopamine responses, whatever, you know, propels people to, to do things. Um, it's just, it's exciting. And I find myself craving those experiences of seeing things that I haven't seen before. And it might not be a new species. It might be, you know, like a different variety of something. Once you start paying close attention to things, you start to see within a species, all the variation that's there. And when things emerge um, 
in the spring and you know where they tend to occur and where maybe they're not they don't normally occur and and you know there's always new things to be found out there that are like you said intriguing and fascinating for curious minds um but complicated to communicate, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think all the more important to communicate, you know, yeah, to reground people in, you know, what it is to be human on this planet, in this universe. And that isn't all just about, like, getting a career and enough money for a big house and, you know. And some ATVs. Sorry yeah, for whatever. the across the street, by the way. Sorry to you and the audience, but um, that's our current background soundtrack is the neighbor's kids driving the quads around and hey welcome to warren county i stubbornly keep thinking that i can do these podcasts outside <laughs> of new jersey and not be interrupted by airplanes and roadside mowers and atvs and so on but hey it's coronavirus you got to take your interviews where you can so for those of you listening who are annoyed by the uh, atvs in the background yes I find the sound annoying too thanks for sticking with us it's not as bad as the uh, mosquitoes in the Carrie Hardy episode. I interviewed him <laughs> on a lake shore in Maine oh, and wow. the sun was setting and all of a sudden like the last half hour of the interview you just hear <laughs> and I eventually was like we've given so much blood we need to stop this interview. So but quads are sort of like the mosquitoes of the uh, of the uh, vehicular world or like the buzzing horse flies maybe. Yeah. Anyway they seem to have subsided for the time being. So, um, you're on sabbatical. Yeah. Uh, that must be pretty awesome. Just give me a tiny window into like what you did with your summer vacation. Um, well, sabbatical, when you, I was fortunate to get a full year sabbatical uh, at the college, but they, in doing so, only pay me half my salary. So I had to hoof it this summer to make sure that the bills were paid. Um, so that I could, you know, do the research and writing that um, the college is expecting me to do. And I was, again, fortunate to be able to pay the bills by doing rare plant surveys all over the state. And for much of the past 20 years of doing work in this field, I've been focusing either on, you know, single species projects like Schwabia or, or Sea Beach Amaranth, um, or doing rare plant surveys in really degraded parts of the state, like the state coastline and central New Jersey and the Piedmont. Um, and this summer I had the real just joy of getting to connect with the kind of more intact and thriving ecosystems in New Jersey, both in the north and southern parts of the state. So I was roaming around in, in ponds in northern New Jersey and uh, the Kittatinny Ridge and the Highlands, uh, doing work in the salt marshes and uh, sea level fens and tidal rivers of South Jersey. And, you know, every day was just a new adventure, um, learning species that I'd never seen before, um, finding things that in some cases had never been seen in those places or were new to the state um, or to North America. So it was just uh, a constantly thrilling summer for me that just fed that uh, that joy that I was talking about of just, you know, connecting with the world around you and learning to relate to it uh, in that personal way. And I, I got to get paid to do it. So it was just, <laughs> I 
again, I just feel really lucky um, to have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, you paid your dues. Do you do you basically get to just choose your agenda and say like I'm going to go check out this quadrant or this area? And yeah. Like then just I had free reign to go, so I just picked places on the map that looked interesting. In some cases, I had specific things in mind. In other cases, okay. it was just um, trying to find places that I hadn't been to before and was had been interested in exploring. You know, I, I teach spring, summer, and fall, and and that eats up a lot of time. So I. There's times of year when I haven't been able to botanize hardly yeah. at all, like the fall or early spring, and it's hard for me to get out, you know, to parts of the state that are an hour's drive away or more, especially raising young children. It's, you know, it wouldn't have been fair to leave my wife to <laughs> the house and family so that I could go um, exploring at to the, you know, the degree that I wanted to. But, um... So yeah, so some cases I was looking, you know, for example, I've for years have been interested in a plant called Marsh Cinquefoil, Comarum palustre, that was a state historic plant in New Jersey. And on a recent trip to Vancouver, I saw it growing in a marsh there for the first time. Although it wasn't in flower, it was still really striking. And I said, I gotta really see if I could dig that one up in New Jersey somewhere, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so this year, um, there's one, fairly recent record that I knew about and I went to check I I checked on it at the time of year that it was supposed to be there and I didn't have any luck and um, I, you know just on a whim decided to go to a nearby place where it wasn't known from but the, on the map things looked really similar and we got to that lake and it was there by the thousands it was all That's over funny. the place the, near the first plant we saw in paddling out on the lake was was the marsh cinquefoil and then right next to it um, my assistant who was working with me that day she went off to go take a leak in the woods and came back well, as we were paddling out there I said you know we should also keep an eye out for feather foil this Hotonia inflata it's this time of year it should be out here similar kinds of habitats just, you know it's just something to keep in mind <laughs> so she comes back after taking a leak and says with her phone she's like is this plant Hotonia nice. I was like yeah it is <laughs> so she found Hotonia there in the same place that we found the marsh cinquefoil and that ended up being a county record it hadn't been seen in Sussex County before so we rediscovered a plant that hadn't been seen in New Jersey in 30 plus years in a thriving population where it was growing by the thousands and found Hotonia inflata by the hundreds right next to it in a place where it was also not known from and a half a dozen other rare plants by the end of the day and um my neurons were just like on fire that day. I was just drunken <laughs> with the light of finding all these amazing things. And so I've had a couple experiences like that this summer that um, just were a combination of tremendous luck and good fortune of, of being on sabbatical and having the time and ability to look for this stuff and a little bit of a knowledge and experience to know where to look um, to find these things and it paid off that's an awesome energizing cheerful note to end on so i'm going to cut you off there because i like see you glowing talking about finding <laughs> these rare things and it's i i can totally relate to having those magic field days when you're just finding one thing after another and it's so exciting so thanks for taking the time to chat sure I really appreciate it and wanted to talk to you for a while just to catch up and also to to record something for the podcast and see yeah, how much we appreciate it. it.